0: Go ahead and open our Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter one. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you in need of your presence. In need of your mercy, in need of your grace. When we come to your word expecting to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be rebuked, to be taught. Lord, we pray that in this time, the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted through the preaching of his word. That your spirit would have free reign in this place. To point men and women to their only hope in life and death, Christ the Lord. Pray, Father, that in all that's said and done, Christ would have preeminence. We pray this in his name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin our study of the letter to the Colossians. So Colossae was located... On a major trade route in the Roman province of Asia. It was ethnically and religiously diverse due to the large amount of travelers that would move throughout the area. You see the abundant diversity within the city helps account for the seemingly syncretistic belief system that Paul is addressing in the letter. In many ways, the false teaching that he's addressing is actually a bit elusive to pinpoint because it combines pagan and Jewish practices. While the false teaching that he seeks to expose isn't as obvious as what you would find in Galatians, for example, it does have far-reaching implications for our lives in our church today. Paul likely wrote this letter while imprisoned in either Rome or or Ephesus, and it seems that he had also written the letter of Philemon and Ephesians around the same time. You see, Colossians bears several similarities to Ephesians, but each letter addresses different issues within the respective churches. Philemon could really be viewed in many ways as a practical application of the theological truth and the practice that Paul calls the church to in Colossae. Interestingly, Paul was not directly responsible for planting the church in Colosse. In fact, Colossians 2.1 tells us that he had never even visited the congregation, which makes his love for the church all the more astonishing. It seems that Epaphras was responsible for planting and pastoring this local church. It's also believed that Epaphras planted the church in Laodicea and Heropolis, which was in the surrounding Region. Epaphras was likely converted under the ministry of Paul on his missionary journey through Ephesus. And a native to the city of Colossae, he took this gospel message that had transformed his life and took it back to his hometown. And the Lord blessed those efforts, and a church was planted. After establishing the church, false teachers began to draw away the congregation or attempted to draw the congregation away from the simplicity of the gospel, which is Christ crucified, buried, and risen. Before we examine verses 1 and 2 this morning, I want us to consider a few important truths that we're going to find in this letter. First and foremost, this letter is about Jesus Christ. It's about who he is and what he came to accomplish and what he did accomplish. This letter is Christocentric to the very core. In this letter, we are reminded of a number of truths about who Jesus is. This is a short letter very short, yet I want us to hear what does Paul say about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, primarily in just chapters 1 and 2. He says that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is eternal. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the head of the new creation The church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has preeminence in all things. He possesses full divinity. divinity. He is the mystery of God. He is the hope of glory for the believer. All the treasures, listen church, all the treasures and wisdom of God are hidden in him. God's fullness dwells in him. He is the head of all rulers, all authorities. The Sabbath, the holy days, the Old Testament festivals point to him, find their fulfillment in him. And he has ascended to the Father's right hand and he is now, today, seated, ruling over all. Christ is the judge who will execute justice in the earth. Brothers and sisters, Colossians is about Christ. Next, let's take a look at the work that he accomplished, as referenced in the letter. He has established his kingdom on earth. He has provided redemption and forgiveness. He reconciles and brings peace to those who were once God's enemies. His death secures the salvation of his people. His power energizes the obedience of his people. He fills and satisfies the believer. We are circumcised in him. We are buried with him. We are resurrected to life in him. He paid for and canceled our indebtedness to the Father by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the satanic rulers and authorities that were working against us. He grows and nourishes His body, the church. We die to the elemental spirits, the ruling uh, age in Him. He will return. He will bring us to glory with Him. He has purchased for us an eternal inheritance and He will certainly bring it to fruition. As you can see, this relatively small letter reverberates with great cries about the greatness of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So if we study this letter without understanding this, I believe we're missing Paul's main point. Second, the false teaching present within the community seemed to take many shapes, I'm sure this will be explored in greater detail, especially as we get into chapter 2 of the letter. But I want us to quickly highlight a couple of things to bear in mind as we begin our study today. In Colossians 2 verse 8, for example, Paul encourages the believer not to be held captive by worldly philosophy, by empty, deceitful words, by the spirits of this world, the elemental spirits of this age Ultimately, anything that would seek to pull the believer's hope, faith, love, and confidence away from Christ and Christ alone must be rejected. Additionally, there were those in the church who were boasting about a more complete, a more full, a more satisfying Christian experience, and it seems that this was based upon visions and angelic worship and man-made regulations. These teachers were saying there's something more to the Christian life than Christ. Paul says that the Christian life is Christ. He is all and he satisfies all his people. It is really as if Paul is presenting Christ as this multifaceted complex gem that he's holding up before the church while these worldly people are trying to captivate them with man-made regulations. He says, look at Jesus. And it's like he's turning and examining him from every angle to display his immeasurable beauty and worth. What man-made regulation could compare to the wisdom of God in Christ? Third. The believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ is an essential element to growing in holiness and maturity. Paul makes reference to this reality in a number of ways throughout the letter. God's word teaches us that all the blessings and benefits of Christ become ours by virtue of our union with him. At conversion, we are intimately and truly united to the person and work of Christ, such that everything he did in his life, in his death, his resurrection and ascension become ours by virtue of being grafted into him. John Calvin says it this way, For since we are allowed to participate in him, foolish though we are in ourselves, he is our wisdom before God. Though we are sinners... He is our righteousness. Though we are unclean, He is our purity. Though we are frail and devoid of strength and weapons to withstand the devil, ours is now the power given to Him in heaven and on earth to crush the devil and to break down the gates of hell. Though we still possess a mortal body, He is our life. In short, all the good things He gives are ours. In Him, we have everything in ourselves, nothing. We must therefore be built upon this foundation if we would be temples consecrated to God. So, any attempt to walk in obedience to God, chapters three and four, without a deep and abiding understanding of the person and work of Jesus in this mystical union that we share with Him, chapters one and two will lead to discouragement, doubt, and condemnation. With that being said, let's look at what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The first thing we see this morning is that Paul identifies himself as the author of the letter. He also identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You see, an apostle was someone selected by the Lord Jesus to bear testimony to the message of the gospel. Apostolic teaching bore the authority of Christ himself, as Paul makes reference to in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. He says, what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord to reject. If they reject this command, that person must be rejected, cut off from Christ. So apostolic teaching bore the authority of Christ himself. The apostles were responsible for both the oral and written testimony about the person and work of Christ. We see several occasions in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, of this proclamation of the gospel. The gospel of Christ crucified, dead, risen, reigning, and returning for his people. The office of apostle was reserved for those ordained by God who had visibly and personally walked with the Lord. Take Mark, for example, in Mark 3, verses 13 and 14, it says, And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the Lord Jesus called those whom he desired, they came to him. And it also says in verse 14, he called them apostles. But I want us to understand that the first duty of an apostle, according to Mark three fourteen, is to be with him, to commune with him. You see, you have no message to take to the world if you're not first with him. So, the apostles were those who were with him, that heard, that saw his teaching. So, since the apostles were not going to live forever, it was necessary that they provided for the church throughout all ages a written testimony that bears the authority of Christ himself. And ultimately, we know it is the Word of God that we have before us in our New Testaments today. Paul's apostleship was unique. And then he wasn't acquainted with the Lord until after his death and resurrection. But if you recall in Galatians chapter 1, what does Paul do after his conversion? He separates himself for three years to do what? To be with him. To be with the Lord. To learn the gospel message from Christ. So he appears to him on the road to Damascus, calls him to himself to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles that he had so violently opposed. His apostleship was ordained by God the Father. He didn't pursue this office on his own. Rather, he was appointed to this position by God. This man was a blasphemous murderer. He was a persecutor of the church prior to To the Lord's calling. Paul's call was according to the will of God. You see, Paul wasn't interested in learning who Jesus was and what he had come to do. He was interested in crushing and silencing the message of the gospel. Yet, God, in his immeasurable mercy, in his unrelenting grace, called this arrogant blasphemer to herald the unsearchable riches of Christ. His calling, his appointing to this position by the will of God wasn't based on his wisdom. It wasn't based on his effort. It wasn't based on his seeking. It wasn't based on his gifting. It was based on God's sovereign choice. There may be some Here this morning that need to hear that God delights in saving the most miserable of sinners. You may have spoken or thought blasphemous things about God. Maybe you've brought harm to others. You've stolen things that you could never repay. You have used your body to commit sins you wished you could undo. You have brought irreparable damage to your family, to your children, to your relationship with your spouse. I don't know what you may be struggling with. The point is not to minimize sin or to reduce its consequences. It does have consequences. But your hope this morning is we serve a God who is willing and able to save the worst of the worst because salvation is by grace. All of us stand before him based on on grace as it has been revealed to us in the gospel and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I have been amazed. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, at Paul's ability to move past the things he had done. I mean, this man was there consenting to the death of Stephen as an angry mob bashed his head and body in with stones And he watched. He was a part of this foolishness, this opposition to Christ. He imprisoned people. The threats in Acts 9, it talks about the church was afraid of him because of his reputation to silence the gospel and any who were faithful to it. He was on a journey to persecute the church at the time of his conversion. I want you to think of the families that were torn apart the livelihoods lost, Stephen wasn't resurrected bodily after he was converted. He was still dead. There were still ongoing consequences for those who loved this man. And yet, he pressed on, looking to Jesus. How did he do that? I think it was moment by moment when these memories must have been forged into his mind he had to have reminded himself of what he wrote in galatians 2:20 i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me in the life that i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me that man is dead I have been given a mission, and the life that I have is not my own. It is Christ, so it's His mission. It's His purpose. It's what He has called me to do. I'm not to wallow in the sins of my past, wishing I could undo it. We move on in hope. You see, His faithful service didn't atone for the sins. It didn't. But it was this expression of love for Christ. He had been washed in the precious blood of Christ. And there was real forgiveness for a real fool, for a real sinner. You think, well, that was prior to his conversion. That's not been my experience. I've done these things after conversion. Maybe not to that level. Well, I think of the apostle Peter. When Jesus is telling him, you're going to deny me three times And he says, I'll never do it. And he says, Jesus says to him, Satan desired to have you, to sift you like wheat. But when you have turned, after you have denied me, when you've turned, he is Christ forever. When I restore you, tell your brothers. So if you've sinned after you've been given the light of the gospel, Jesus is still interceding for you. When you have turned, when you have come out of that bondage, that foolishness, Tell your brothers, tell your sisters, the Lord saves. His gruesome death secures our pardon, and he lives to make intercession for us. He is riding alongside Timothy, it tells us at the end of verse 1, our brother. Timothy was a faithful companion and servant of Christ alongside Paul throughout his ministry. We know that Timothy served as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Some believe that Timothy was responsible for writing the letter under Paul's supervision. I think he's just including Timothy as a faithful companion. He was alongside him, obviously, during his imprisonment. So I don't believe that Timothy was responsible under the authority of Paul, but I believe that he did have this close connection to this man who was very faithful to him and, more importantly, faithful to the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul's relationship with Timothy serves as a great model for Christian discipleship. Paul was constantly pouring into men and women that would herald, that would bring forth this gospel message to the world. Paul was not concerned about having a stranglehold on the gospel. He didn't have a big billboard, if you want the gospel, come to me. He trained other men To preach it because this gospel message of Christ had transformed his life. His concern was that Christ would be exalted and he lived to preach that message and to help other men, to train other men to preach the the gospel message effectively. This letter repeatedly emphasizes this familial relationship. He says, our brother in verse 2, he calls the church faithful brothers. There is an eternal bond, a real bond, a familial bond within God's church because we have been united in the same Lord. So this bond draws us close to one another. Our second point this morning are the recipients, and we see that in the first part of verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He describes these believers as saints, some translations might say holy ones, and faithful brothers. While we hear the term saint and maybe we think it's descriptive of their character, it is actually a noun here describing who they are, devoid of their actual character. That's the faithful brothers part. All believers possess this positional status of saint before God because the righteousness that they possess, the righteousness the Colossian believers possessed, the righteousness that you possess, if in fact you are in Christ this morning, and the righteousness I possess is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is received, that is bestowed from without, not worked up from within. So we don't meet some standard that then enables us to refer to ourselves as saints. You know who reached that standard? Jesus did. And Jesus gives it freely to all who come to him. We are to grow in saintliness or holiness, might be a more natural way of talking about that as we become increasingly sanctified or more like Christ in our conduct. This happens in two primary ways. The first is mortification. Mortification is the putting to death of sin. It's killing, in practice, what has already been killed in Christ. That's mortification, and Paul talks about it later in the letter in chapter 3, verse 5. Killing sin is the daily goal of the believer... John Owen says it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We will never reach a point in our lives as believers that there will no longer be sin to kill. If you feel like you've conquered sin, you can know that sin has actually conquered you and your conscience has been so seared that you don't even realize it. The daily call of the believer is to kill sin, mortification. The second is vivification. He refers to this, starting in chapter 3, verse 12. That's the bringing to life of righteousness. You see, the Christian isn't only to put off the sin that's already been put off in Christ, but there's also to be a righteousness that we already possess by imputation, positionally. We're already saints, yet in our conduct, I don't always act all that saintly. I don't always act all that righteously, but that righteousness, that saintliness is to be brought to life as we image forth the character of Christ. You see, our positive obedience to God's law, the bringing to life of righteousness, the fruits of the Spirit, if you would want to talk about it in that way, they are a reflection of the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ and they should be on display as we mature in Christ. But this positional declaration of holiness is unwavering and unchanging before God. We can never be more justified before God than we are at the moment of conversion. Because this righteousness, this justifying righteousness is fixed and it is seated in heaven, or I should say he is seated in heaven at God's right hand. So the most seasoned of saints and the newest Christian both share this same position of saint of being declared righteous in the sight of God because they've both been washed in the same blood. They've both been sealed by the same spirit. They have both been accredited with the same active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also says that they're faithful brothers. If you've read much of Paul's letters, certainly we've been studying in 1 Corinthians, he has a lot of rebukes for the Corinthian church, for the church in Galatia. There's not really very many rebukes, not really any very clear rebukes actually at all in Colossians. There's a lot of warnings to stay on the path, to continue to be rooted and built up and continue to walk as you already have been walking. We see that. But these men, these women in this church... We're faithful to the message of the gospel. Yet even for those who are walking faithfully with the Lord, we must be on guard. Because there is always something or someone, whether it's from within or without, that is seeking to say, Christ plus. Christ plus. Christ plus anything is disaster and ruin. Paul now talks about where these believers are located at. You think, well, at Colossae, but actually let's look at where they're located at spiritually. In Christ. These believers are located in Christ. Paul uses this phrase of in Christ or in the Lord Jesus Christ or some uh, similarity to that some 80 times in the New Testament. 80 times. He refers to believers being in Christ more than any other way. That's the primary way that Paul thinks about the Christian, one who has been planted in Christ. You see, Christians not only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not looking from the outside, we are entering into with this precious, unbreakable union. It's this mystical union of or with Christ through Christ faith and by grace and it is through this that we receive all the blessings and merit of Christ I want us to consider five aspects of the believers union in Christ and also after we're going to do it a little bit different I want to apply this each one we're going to look at five ways the believer is united with Christ and five practical applications for our lives first it is a federal union This simply means that Christ is the representative of the believer in the new covenant before God. Just as Adam represented humans in the garden and he was the federal representative for all mankind, Christ is the representative of his people federally before God. As sin and death are inherited through Adam, righteousness and life are inherited through Christ. He has fulfilled all the requirements that God had placed on his people through the law. And through our union with him, I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters, our union with him, through that, his righteousness is yours. Really, it is yours. It has truly been credited to your account. You are really connected with what he has done. His inheritance becomes our reward. While we would justly stand condemned before a holy God, we can now stand with a confident assurance in the midst of sin and weakness because Christ accomplished what we could never do. And he delights to give us the kingdom. Application. When we're overwhelmed with grief and sorrow from past sins, from present sins, look to Jesus. For he is our only hope in life and death. Luther says this, Labor therefore diligently, that not only out of the time of temptation, but also in the danger and conflict of death, when thy conscience is thoroughly afraid with the remembrance of thy sins past, and the devil assaulteth thee with great violence, going about to overwhelm thee with heaps, floods, and whole seas of sin to terrify thee, to draw thee from Christ, and to to drive thee to despair. That then, I say, thou mayest be able to say with sure confidence, Christ, the Son of God, was given. Not for the righteous and holy, but for the unrighteous and sinners. You see, Christ did not come to represent righteous people. Christ did not come to save the righteous. He didn't come for those who are well. He didn't come to those who didn't recognize, to save those who did not recognize their spiritual brokenness. He came to save real fools. I mean, real sinners. People who have done terrible things that they would like to forget. If you say that you have no need of Christ, then you cannot be His. But if you cry out to Him, recognizing your need for Him, there is mercy. He came to seek and to save the lost. It is a faith union. We enter into union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. I want us to imagine on a cold, night, if you're looking through the window of your front door and and say, at our house we have this wood-burning stove, and say there's a fire going in this stove, and you would know that, man, if I could just get close to that fire, it would alleviate the, the pain and the discomfort that I feel as a result of being bitterly cold. Now, we can have full confidence that the fire could actually warm me and bring some satisfaction to me, But if we never actually enter into the house, the benefits of that fire are not ours. Although we can have confidence that it would alleviate. Now I want us to think about that spiritually. Through faith, we don't stand as a stranger outside the promises of Jesus. This morning we talked about John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all who come to me, I will no wise cast out. Our hope is not to look from that at the outside, but to enter into that promise by union with Christ. It's when we enter into this union that we begin to have our hearts warmed by the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just observe truths from without. He actually begins to bring this truth to reality from within. And these promises that once seemed so distant now become ours application. Our faith increases as we grow in our understanding of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. As critical as faith may be, faith is not your confidence or my confidence in life and death. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, faith didn't live the life I could not live. Faith did not get nailed to the cross and die as a substitute. Faith did not resurrect from the grave. Why is faith not our confidence? Because our faith can be weak sometimes. Our faith can fail sometimes. Our faith can be cold. Our hope is in Christ crucified. Faith is not our hope in life and death. Jesus says faith simply receives what he has already Done And what he has done is finished. It's accomplished. It's not getting greater or lessening. It doesn't go through seasons of change. It's fixed. Horatius Benar says this, All faith here is imperfect. And our security is this, that it matters not how poor or weak our faith may be. If it touches the right object, all is well. Don't hope in your faith. Hope in Jesus. And when we recognize our faith is failing, that it's weak, that it's an embarrassment, cry out to God for mercy. We must commune with the Lord Jesus Christ and think and meditate on his greatness in the revealed word of God. I cannot tell you how many times I have rehearsed Mark 1, 41. So in Mark 1, at the end, it says a leper came to him imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, faith, you can make me clean. That's faith. Jesus' response, it says, moved with pity. I love the commentary he gives us because he didn't have to tell us that. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. I get a lot of hope from that. Because I see that Jesus has a pity on the most miserable of creatures. People that that should have been holding up a sign, separating themselves, but he reaches out with this compassion and pity. There is hope offered to weak, miserable, unsightly creatures. When you look to him and say, Lord, if you will, you know what he says? I will. Be clean. It is a fundamental union. All the benefits and blessings and promises of the Christian life come as the result of this union. Our pardon, our justification, reconciliation, restoration, cleansing, glorification. All of of these things come to us through this union. So John Flavel says this, So then destroy this union... And with it, you destroy all our fruits, privileges, and hopes at one stroke. What he is saying is you cut us off from Christ and we have nothing. But since we are in Christ and since this union is fundamental, we have now received everything that he has done. What Christ has earned becomes ours because we are in him. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. And the Father has seen fit to hide us in Christ. Additionally, all the God-honoring fruit that is born in our lives is drawn by virtue of being united to Him. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 15 when He says, "'Abide in Me, for apart from Me you can do nothing.'" So everything that is worthwhile in our life, every fruit that we produce that would be pleasing to God, is by virtue of this union, of this abiding in Christ. Application. Fruit is produced in my life as I draw from the sweetness of every drop of energizing nutrients that is provided in Christ as the source of all I need. We must avoid man-made religious practices that seek to gain merit before God. We are not to work to produce things from within our strength and our power that will earn the smile of God. These things are actually an offense. You see a piece of fruit might look very appetizing on the outside. It might have all the things that would draw us to want to bite into it, and yet it's met with bitterness. It's met with this repulsion, this rottenness, and we spit it out of our mouths, even though it looks so good. But you can also eat a piece of fruit that looks a bit deformed, that you're questioning, should I even eat this thing? Should I throw it away? I've found actually the fruit that looks a little bit bruised a lot of times actually has the sweetest of flavors. You see, it's the same way with our works, spiritually. Spiritually. We can have the trappings of religion. We can have this outward form of fruit that that someone else would envy. And yet God spits it out of his mouth because it comes from our strength, our effort, our ability, and it points to us. Or you can have this measly Little bit of life that comes from you that's drawn from Christ and as weak and as laughable as that might be to a seasoned Christian. He receives it with sheer delight because it came from the one in whom his soul delights. Abide in Christ by fixing your eyes on his manifold perfections. Think on him draw from him it is only in that way that you will have any fruit that would be pleasing to god why because it's been washed in his blood for it is an unbreakable union in john 14 19 jesus says this because i live you also will live it's pretty simple, right? Because I live, you also will live. So our life is as secure as Jesus's life is. So if Jesus, the source of life, could cease to exist, then we're in trouble. But since that will never happen, since he will continue to live, we can have confidence that we also will continue to possess eternal life. It is also impossible for us to be severed from this life-giving vine. John 10:28 through 30 says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one." You see, the father has given us, has given his church, his bride to the son as the reward for his obedience, making it impossible for that position to ever be severed because it's actually an extension of the union that the father has with the son. So as secure that that union is within the Trinity, that's how secure we are this morning in Christ. Yes, we may lose the temporary benefits and blessings of this union through sin, through trials, through times of testing. But we can never lose the abiding reality that we have been grafted into the Son. Application. We must live with great confidence that our pardon has been sealed, our life secured. In one sense, the, the book of Ephesians says that we are already seated in heavenly places by virtue of being in Him. You see... The son was satisfied with the gift that the father gave him. Isaiah 53, 11. This is so, I think, important to this whole issue of our eternal, our eternal connection to the life of Christ. In Isaiah 53, 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul. So his is the suffering servant. We know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Well, what did he see? What did he see out of the anguish of his soul that satisfied him? Well, let's go back to verse 10, Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says that, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see his offspring. So in the midst of this unbearable anguish, as he was suffering for us, dying in our place, the father gave him a glimpse of his inheritance, which is you And me, his church. So, how unloving would it be for the father to give the son a glimpse of his inheritance and then just let him be cut off? Like, well, I was hoping that that would be your offspring. But they just didn't make the cut, they just didn't stay where they needed to. No. The father has given us to the son, and the offspring that satisfied his soul is the offspring that will be in him with heaven for all eternity. On our darkest day, we may run with hope and expectation into the arms of our loving Father by the power of his Son. Five, it is an intimate union. Our union with Christ is one that intricately binds us together. We see this in the conversion of Saul. Excuse me, the conversion of Saul. When he confronts him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What we learn in that is a persecution of the church is actually a persecution of Christ himself, because the two are intimately joined together. We see the same truth illustrated in Matthew 25, when Jesus is teaching and he says that when you, you fed me when I was hungry, you gave me a drink when I'm thirsty. And they said, Lord, when did we do these things for you? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. So when God's church, when Christ's church suffers, it is actually viewed as persecuting Christ himself. When we serve God's church faithfully, it is actually viewed as serving Christ himself because the two are intimately bound together. So the way in which we view the church and one another is radically altered when considering this intimate relationship between Christ and his church. When we inflict harm upon one another, when we neglect to serve and to love one another, when we slander one another, when we drive disunity within the body, we are actually sinning against Christ to whom that person is joined. And in fact, to whom we also are joined. We must be very slow to take verbal shots at one another. John Flavel says, beware of the arrows you shoot, and be sure of your mark before you shoot them, because you may, in fact, be taking aim at Christ himself. When you slanderously speak about his bride, it's personal, because the two are intimately bound together. If we posture ourselves against God's people, we are actually posturing ourselves against Christ So this morning, by virtue of this union, we can have confidence in the face of weakness, doubt, fear, and hardship. The Son of God took upon the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of flesh. He grew in wisdom In stature before God and man, he perfectly reflected the glory of God. He submitted himself to the law, fulfilling all of it in word, thought, and deed. He died the death that you and I deserved. He took our sin upon himself. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And they made his grave with the wicked. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, but the grave couldn't hold him because he resurrected, conquering death. And he's ascended into heaven and is currently seating in heaven by God the Father, possessing all glory and all honor. And he will return again to bring us with him and to mete out punishment on the wicked. Brothers and sisters, our union with him, these things are ours. Lastly, see Paul's greeting to the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's very common for Paul to use these terms, grace and peace. We must constantly be reminded that our position before God is based on grace. I was in a meeting at work not long ago, a conference call, which everybody just loves those, right? Two-hour ones. But our CEO was reminding us that you earn a position on this team by your hard work and performance, Now, while that may be a reasonable expectation within a corporate world, that is not the message of the gospel. We don't earn a spot on God's team in God's family through our hard work and performance. Salvation comes to us by grace, through faith. It is a gift freely bestowed by God on those whom he chooses to grant it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It cannot be earned through human effort. God receives all the glory. We receive all the benefits and riches of Christ. John Bunyan says this, God justifies us by bestowing upon us, not expecting from us. Aren't you excited this morning that salvation, that justifying grace is about bestowing upon us, not receiving, not expecting from us? You see, the grace of God isn't just simply this theological concept. The grace of God is actually the Lord Jesus Christ. All the grace that comes to us is channeled through Jesus. While it's accurate to speak of God's free grace and that it comes to us freely, but it actually also comes at an expense. But the expense is not on us. It comes at the expense of Christ. It is only through his death that you and I can receive the blessings of his obedience. I want us to quickly touch four aspects of God's grace. Four facets of grace. First, God's grace brings salvation. It always accomplishes its intended purpose. God's grace will most assuredly draw his lost sheep to him. God's grace brings life out of death Light out of darkness. Freedom out of bondage. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved. Second, God's grace brings comfort. The unmerited favor of God meets us sweetly and tenderly in the darkest valleys, bringing joy to our souls. It soothes our troubled conscience. It silences the enemy and it overcomes the world. Third, God's grace brings transformation. God's grace enables us to battle sin from the full storehouses of his all-sufficient power. His grace never diminishes. It's constantly overflowing. Even if you have drawn from that well so many times, it overflows continually and it transforms us. This causes our hearts or should cause our hearts to overflow with thankfulness. As we look to him, thereby driving sin out, Titus tells us that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live godly in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Fourth, God's grace brings humility. The heart that recognizes that it's completely dependent upon God for everything for everything, quickly moves off of self and on to him. God is not looking to you or to me for anything. Our spiritual poverty becomes evident as we think on God's grace, on his unmerited favor. Lastly, Paul wishes God the Father's peace upon the congregation. You see, the plan of redemption Was the Father's plan. It was His decree. It pleased the Father to crush His Son for us. The wounds by which we are healed that were inflicted upon Christ was the Father's plan of redemption. The Father is not a distant one who has to be at peace with us because now we're in Christ and He has no other choice. He had ordained from all eternity to save his people. He sent his son to do it, and the spirit now applies it. This is God's plan of peace. So there is this objective reality of peace that has been accomplished by Christ and given to those who are united to him by faith. So if you're a believer here this morning, whether you feel like it or not, the objective reality of the hostility being removed of the peace that you now have with God is unchanging. so the objective reality of our peace has been accomplished if we are in Christ because he brought it by the blood of his son. but there's also a subjective experience of God's peace. Now the subjective experience of God's peace should flow out of the objective reality, right? I should feel peace because I know I am at peace. The problem is I'm weak, right? I'm sinful. I doubt God's goodness. I doubt his promises. There are times in the Christian life when God withdraws his relational presence from us. Many times it's because of sin, And if we refuse to confess this sin, then the Lord withdraws his presence from us so this subjective peace can become very elusive. We don't have time to look at all the reasons why God may remove peace subjectively for a time. Maybe that's something for another time. But I want to encourage you this morning. If you are allowing sin to rule in your life, it is a miserable thing to be a Christian without the subjective experience of God's peace. We cannot cling to the promises of God and hold our cherished sins close. It will disturb your peace. The experiential peace of God is elusive to the heart that walks in sin. You will not experience God's peace in these times because he loves you and he wants that sin to be removed and to draw close to you. We must never forget that we have died to the power of sin by being united to the death of Christ. However, we must be careful to avoid allowing the subjective peace to overrule the objective reality. What I mean by that is just because you don't feel like you're his, if your hope is Christ in life and death, you're his. He's yours. So we can't let the subjective, elusive peace that we want remove or cause us to question the objective reality of it. Take courage this morning. Christ has brought peace by his body on the tree for all who come to him through faith. If you're here this morning... Maybe you've never looked to Christ. Maybe you have never been united to Christ. I plead with you to do so. You may object. I'm not broken enough over my sin in order for me to come. The Lord would simply dismiss me as self-righteous or prideful. Response. Any true awareness and conviction of sin is evidence of the Spirit's work. Do not add to your sin by refusing to lay it down at his feet with the hopes of being more broken in the future. Come into his holy presence and the light of his glory will expose your rottenness. Trust me, he will do that. Objection. My heart is too hard. It cannot be broken before him. It cannot be restored. Response. Response. Everyone who falls on this rock will be broken. He can remove your heart of stone. He can give you a heart of flesh. How could you think that the best way to deal with your hard-heartedness is to further harden it by not coming? All who come to him will in no wise be cast out. Objection. My friends, my family already believe that I'm a Christian. I'm already a member of the church. Response, the blessings of the gospel do not come through church membership. But by being united to Christ, why perish pretending to possess Christ when you can really have him? He is willing to save those who have pretended to love him outwardly but have despised him inwardly. Cry out to Him for mercy. He is willing and able to forgive. For those who are in Christ this morning, I want to remind you that your sin has been put to death. It is no longer your master. It has been defeated. This morning, it's not a call of self-reliance to show what you can offer up to God. It's a call to draw our spiritual nourishment from Christ, enabling us to put our sin death to death think on his love think on his pity in the midst of your struggle stay connected to him drink deeply from the overflowing wells of his grace sin will be killed as you're drawn into his presence righteousness transformation will happen as you look to him and experience him don't sit on the outside looking in thinking what it would be like to be with him go Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. Lastly, let's battle to experience the unity that Christ has already accomplished in this church. Let's battle to experience it. John 17, I want you to think about this. Jesus prays that his church would be one as the Father and the Son are one. There is a real unity that he has bought, he has purchased with his blood. We do not want to be at war with those whom God is at peace with. It doesn't mean we agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we don't confront one another. In fact, true peace and true unity sometimes does require us to talk about things that are wanting to threaten that and drive that away. By God's grace, let's allow the reality of our union with Christ to draw us close to one another so that it gives testimony to the world of God's abundant grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the reality of our union with your Son that has been bestowed upon us through your Spirit, we pray that it would bring comfort to those who are yours. They would leave this place with a hope and confidence in what Christ has done. Lord, for any who would be here this morning who is not united to you Lord there is no blessings for them there's no benefits to them because all benefits come through vir- by virtue of being united with your son so Lord I pray that they would come and they would have this hope and expectation that Christ came to save sinners and we pray that your name would be glorified as we sing this song of worship in Jesus' name, amen.